I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready (laughs) to begin another grand experiment? Of course! I'm very ready! Let's go! All right, let's give it a whirl! Let's give it a whirl. Hello, everyone. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you're here. I am looking out my window right now, and it looks very fall. We're going to have like two or three days of actual fall weather, and it is uh, chilly outside. Like, I almost might need a hoodie. <laughs> but the water is gray, and the pelicans are fishing, and it's very beautiful here. Uh, that has been your beachfront report from some time in the past. Um, it is at one time, let it be known at one time, uh, there was some fall weather in Texas. Uh, so, uh, thank you all so much for tuning in, uh, wherever you are in this great country of ours in this wonderful world. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting us. Uh, for those of you, if this is your first episode, uh, the way that we do things here is that in a moment, I will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure to my mother. She will then input that data into the back computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that that person was born. She will then do her best to give a blind reading of that chart, telling us what she can about the person's personality traits, uh, fortunes, uh, characteristics uh, of this historical figure. Uh, I will then reveal to her who our mystery history guest is, give a little background about the person, then we'll come together at the end, figure out how accurate the chart was at predicting what that person would do. And without any further ado, let us begin. Okay, let's go. This is a female. Ooh, okay. Born on the 27th Mm -hmm. of April. Uh Uh-huh. 1759. Ooh. Okay. Do we have a time? 1.05 p.m. Awesome. 
1905. All right. That's very specific. What country? Uh, the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Should I go England? Or England. Um, is it one of London. those? London. Oh, okay. <laughs> is this going to be one of those Gaelic things? All right. Well, all right. Okay. Well. All right, then. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, I realized <laughs> for the first time in four seasons that I don't normally start with the rising sign. And for those people who are astrologers listening to me and following along, uh, it helps if I give the rising sign first. So we already see that this person has an interception, right? You see this? Uh-huh. Okay. So they have an interception. Um, okay. So starting with the ascendant, which is two degrees Virgo. All right. Then we have sun at six degrees Taurus, moon at 14 degrees Taurus, Mercury at 27 degrees Taurus, Venus at two degrees Gemini, Mars at 22 degrees Aries, Jupiter at 22 degrees Capricorn, Saturn at 13 degrees Pisces, Uranus at 29 degrees Pisces, Neptune at 14 degrees Leo, Pluto at 25 degrees Sagittarius, and North Node at 8 degrees Cancer, and Chiron at 8 degrees Aquarius. Wow. Okay. Let me look at this. Hmm. Okay, this is very interesting, very dynamic, very uh, intense. I'm going to start by saying that whenever we have Taurus planets like this, we have someone who can be very assertive and very stubborn. Taurus is just, mm, Taurus is very valuable <laughs> for what they do. Love the Taurus aspects because a lot, I mean, that immovable situation is always helpful, you know, as long as they're using the good side, not just the obstinate side for no reason. I'm just obstinate for no reason. That's not helpful. But that willing to, you know, go through the fire and the flame and the rain and the snow and just keep going. It's pretty amazing. But let's start with their first house. Their ascendant is in Virgo. And they don't have any planets in their first house. And their first house is ruled by Virgo. And because they have an interception, I am um, looking at this chart in Placidus houses. Uh, An interception is they have their first house and their second house are both Virgo. 
So first house Virgo is going to make this person should come across mm, smart, uh, keen, um, like doesn't miss anything. Like they, they see everything. If this is the right birth time, which we're hoping it is, um, very well put together, every hair in place, everything has to be the way it should be. And these are all the good things, you know, um, nothing in the house, but just gives the appearance of kind of, you know, a person who knows what they're doing and also could be an excellent communicator because it's ruled by Mercury. But, uh, also it could give them like having Virgo rising or having Gemini rising can give a person, I almost want to say more Virgo. Because the Virgo would be mercurial, of course, but almost pixie-ish. Like, almost like a really sweet, like, pixie-ish looking. Um, Okay, let me move on from there. So, second house cusp is also Virgo. Um, Virgo in the second house is going to make someone very aware of their values and their finances. And what they value, valuables, and they're going to be kind of um, level-headed about it. Like there shouldn't be any extra spending or uh, extravagance or these kind of things. Even if they have a ton of money, they should be fairly on top of it Uh, because there's no planets there. They don't have like Pluto or Uranus in there to kind of throw things off, you know. Then third house is Libra, and there's nothing in their third house, but third house ruled by Libra should make their communication uh, fair, fair fair-minded, seeing both sides. Third house is also um, all communication, because it's ruled by Gemini. It's also siblings. They don't have anything in this house, but I would assume that They would have had a cordial relationship with any siblings. They actually would have had kind of a a nice childhood, I would think, because it's Libra and Libra is pretty and and good and nice, you know? Um, I mean, that's, again, the good side. Fourth house is Scorpio. And they do have Pluto in Sagittarius in the fourth house. Because we're doing Placidus houses, uh, we have just um, the tail end of Scorpio coming in to their fourth house. But it still is ruled by Scorpio. So fourth house, there could be secrets. There could be um, issues with the home. There could be uh, power in the home or gaining power from your, like your home base is your power spot because their Pluto is in Sag, but Pluto being the planet that rules Scorpio and Pluto being death and rebirth and changes and secrets and taboo things and death and rebirth and inheritances and 
this kind of stuff going on in your fourth house, it could make that fourth house. I mean, worst case scenario, it could be that a lot of people like, like literally linearly pass away in the house or in the home or near, you know what I mean? Near the home. That would be like a literal sense of it. But in this case, there's some kind of power with a cavalier attitude because it's Sagittarius. So Pluto and Sag is going to be adventurous and um, maybe they make their home traveling. Maybe they're, they, their home is like somehow they travel all the time. Um, but there's something about that power spot, that adventurous attitude, because it's all the Sagittarius stuff in Pluto. Mm, very interesting. Um, then we have fifth house cusp is Capricorn and we have Jupiter at 22 degrees Capricorn in the fifth house. So that is a lot of benevolence having to do with fifth house things. Fifth house is ruled by Leo and the sun and Fifth house is romance and children and leadership and entertaining and entertainment, show business, hobbies. Fifth house is kind of anything that, that's fun and joyful. And this person has Jupiter there and their fifth house cusp is Capricorn. So that kind of gives it a little bit of restriction from the Saturn because Saturn rules Capricorn. So now we have a Jupiter planet, Jupiter in Capricorn. So maybe there's some sort of um, restriction with this. It's not as benevolent as it could be. Like, like somehow something interferes with the joy of it, the pure joy of it. I mean, there's still joy. There's still luck. I mean, you could even say Jupiter and Capricorn is very lucky with money, you know, uh, very fortunate with money, very fortunate with business, mm, that kind of thing. Then six house cusp is in Aquarius, six house cusp is Aquarius. And we have Chiron there at eight degrees. Chiron in Aquarius in your sixth house is going to be, I mean, it could be working with humanity, working to heal humanity. Um, groups of people working to heal groups of people. If you are doing what you're supposed to do, because Chiron is the wounded healer the wounds that you have, you manifest into healing. It is not easy. Chiron is not easy. Chiron is that thing that even though, like, even though you're healing with Chiron, it still kind of hurts you when you're doing it. So there's something about that. And it has to do with groups of people. Also Aquarius 
is ruled by Uranus, so it could be having to heal things unexpected. It's possible. Um, Aquarius used to be ruled by Saturn, so there could be some sort of restriction there or lessons to be learned there. Maybe. Is any of this making any sense? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Always so surprised when you say yeah. Okay. Um, so seventh house is Pisces. And this person has Saturn and Pisces in the seventh house. Saturn in the seventh house in general is going to give you lessons, learning lessons from partners, growth through lessons with partners. And the situation with that is most people, when something is pushed at them or they feel that levity from you know, the intensity of, of, of a lesson that has to be learned, they tend to like, want to like move out of the way and not have that, you know? But, um, if you are willing to give into it and say, all right, I, I just, let's do this, you know, let's, let's move on. Uh, somehow this person has lessons with partners and in Pisces is almost a spiritual situation, a creative situation. Maybe this person has creative partners. Maybe this person has partners that are musicians, but this person I think would want a creative partner. That's what they would be looking for. Let's see their Mars. I don't know. Cause they got Mars and Aries at 22 degrees. So they probably want, I don't even know how to describe this, but having Saturn in Pisces in the seventh house, and then if I jump ahead up here, see where Mars is right here? Um, this person has Mars and Aries, so they're definitely going to want a man-man, you know? Uh, at least that's what, until they figure out what they're looking for. Because they really do need a strong masculine man. I mean, I guess if they're, if they identify as being feminine, you know? But um, this Saturn in Pisces in the seventh house is lessons with partners. Then we go into the eighth house. And in the eighth house, we have Uranus at 29 degrees Pisces. So almost within the orb, we have, because eighth house is also Pisces. See, because we have two Virgo houses and two Pisces houses. All right. And what we don't have is this Sagittarius house or this Gemini house because there's an interception. Okay. So this Uranus at 29 degrees Pisces is going to give you, it's like, it's like, it's like having extra, extra Uranus because it's 29 degrees. So now we have a situation where unexpected things happen. They could be creative things. They could be things having to do with your partner. 
it's in Pisces. This, oh man, another thing I just thought of is like this Saturn in Pisces, she could be dealing with people who are addicted to things. That would be a dark side of that. Addictions. Um, but something about this unexpected, out of the blue situations, and it's in the eighth house for her. And that eighth house is also Pisces, which gives kind of a a veil of misunderstanding and not understanding. Like, why is this happening? There, there is no reason because it's veiled because it's Neptune. It's Pisces. So weird, unexpected things could happen to this person. I would not want that aspect personally. Um, mm -mm. That would be a lot in the eighth house. It could deal with taboo things. It could deal with Mm, it could deal with dark things, but I mean, it could also give her unexpected inheritance, you know, unexpected um, legacy. Uh, okay, so then we're going to move to ninth house. Ninth house in this person's chart is ruled by Aries. And this person has Mars in Aries in the ninth house. She also has sun at six degrees Taurus and moon at 14 degrees Taurus. And Mercury in the 10th house at 27 degrees Taurus. So this lady, Mars in Aries, first of all, is a blessing and a curse because especially if you're in the 1700s, well, I mean, even now, because Mars and Aries for a woman, it makes you quite the warrior. It makes you very independent. It makes you, um, it makes you fiery. It makes you, um, it makes you feel like you can do anything. And maybe you can, you know, you might be able to. Uh, but it is a lot for an average woman to have Mars and Aries because it's so, it's so fiery. And it's in her ninth house. So it could be, it could have to do with travel. It could have to do with higher education. It could have to do with dogma. It could have to do with religion. It could have to do with spiritual things. That's all philosophy. All of these things. The ninth house is ruled by Jupiter. It's ruled by Sagittarius. So it's all that higher thought process. And she has that in Aries. And then she also has sun conjunct moon in Taurus in the ninth house. So there's a lot of connection for this person to travel or higher education or um, really in tune with um, philosophies and dogma. I mean, it could be that she was just super duper duper religious, but I have a feeling it's more than that. Uh, tenth house, her Mercury is there in Taurus at 27 degrees. Mercury in Taurus is going to make her, whew, that Mercury in Taurus, that moon in Taurus and that sun in Taurus. And then you combine that Mars and Aries with that. Mm, 
I would, <laughs> in a lot of ways, I'd be like, there's no sense in trying to argue with her. Do not argue with her. It's not going to work. Um, but her 10th house with Mercury and Venus, her Venus is at two degrees Gemini. That Venus at two degrees Gemini is also going to give her a little bit of detachment in relationships and values and valuables. And this woman may seem like you could hold her over a barrel, but that Venus and Gemini is going to give her an out that she can almost think her way out of her emotions. Something like that. Now the issue is she has an interception. So in order to get to this Venus and Gemini and her Pluto in Sagittarius, those have to be activated uh, per the interception situation. If, if you, if you ignore the interception, then, you know, she, we're just talking about regular placements, but in this, uh, when you're dealing with interceptions, I feel like they need to be activated, but she does have this kind of ace in the hole here, but and uh, she almost needs it because of this Uranus conjunct Saturn in Pisces. That's her escape hatch right there. She somehow can kind of mm, think her way out of whatever these emotional situations might be. She has North Node and Cancer in the 11th house. That would be nurturing groups of people. That's what she should be doing is nurturing groups of people. Um, and then she has a uh, 12th house. Mm, Leo on her 12th house cusp and Neptune in Leo in the 12th house. Neptune in the 12th house. Well, the 12th house is ruled by Neptune. So Neptune and Leo, I mean, Neptune is already the imagination and creativity and all of these things and spiritualism and all of that. And having it in Leo could make her very theatrical <laughs> with her creativity and have it be karmic because it's the 12th house. So, I mean, she could have abilities she's either not aware of or completely aware of. They would be very theatrical. How am I doing? Good. Oh, okay. Do you have any questions? Yes. Um, what would she do for a living? Hmm. Well, we look at several things. One, sixth house is work. It's ruled by Virgo. Her sixth house is ruled by Aquarius. She has Chiron there. So it could have something to do with healing groups of people. Okay. Then 10th house is ruled by Taurus. And she has Mercury there, but she also has Venus there and she has an interception. So I would think that this aspect would bring her into a career where she or, or whatever she's doing in her outer world, how she appears, you know, 
how people see her in this way in her career is that I would think she could make money. I think she could make good money. Now, how she's making this money is an interesting thing because her 11th house is nurturing groups of people. And her 12th house is ruled by Leo. And she has Neptune there. So somehow, I think using a creative ability to heal and nurture people, but she still somehow is making money. It's not like she's volunteered in essence, because she's got this Jupiter and Capricorn. I mean, she's pretty, I think this, this woman is very savvy, if that makes any sense. What would she want to study in school? I think she would want to do... I don't know. I mean, it could be any of these. Her sun and her moon and her Mars are in the ninth house. And the ninth house is higher education. But Taurus is about earthy things and mars is about war and um things like that so i can't tell you exactly what she would want to study but i think she would be a very ferocious is that the word i'm looking for not ferocious voracious is that what i'm trying to say mm -hmm. like like all consuming like she would want to learn now if she doesn't go to a, a school or a university because this is taurus and earthy i mean she could know a lot about natural things natural things that happen in nature and the earth but somehow connecting that to spiritual and travel because it's ninth house. If this birth time is right, she has a heavy ninth house, which means she has a thirst for knowledge. Her Mars is there. It's her direction. It's part of her direction. What kind of partner is she looking for? Well, if this birth time is correct, she has... She's, she wants someone who is Mars and Aries, very masculine, very, even warrior-like, fiery, but with a creative side because she has Pisces on her seventh house cusp and she has Saturn there. And Pisces. So, I don't know what kind of creative warrior this woman's looking for, but um, I would say that the person that she wants to be with, if she ever found him, if she ever found one that could meet this criteria, would be a very unique individual. Very unique. Hard to find. What is her relationship with her father like? 
Well, she has Sun in Taurus uh, in the ninth house. Her father could have been really stubborn, too. Um, she might have gone head-to-head -head with her father. It's possible. Um, but Taurus can also be very fatherly, very good provider, you know, that kind of thing. Like a, like almost like a, it's different than a Capricorn, even though Capricorn is the father, Taurus is a little, I feel like Capricorn can disconnect more than Taurus. Taurus is more, mm, in tune, I guess, more in tune because Taurus is earth. It's earthy. I mean, Virgo and Capricorn are also earth, but Taurus is like the earth, like the earth where things grow. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes any sense. How does she deal with her emotions? <laughs> well, all this Taurus, she probably just, you know, eats a lot of good food. <laughs> um, Self-care. Uh, she could be very bull in a china closet, this one. She could be, now I'll say ferocious. She could be ferocious uh, because she has sun, moon, and mercury in Taurus. So even though she might have a long fuse, when you get to the end of that, maybe you better not be in her presence because it's about to get very, very intense. That Mars and Aries and sun and moon and Mercury and Taurus, that's going to be a lot. I would imagine that people could probably hear her, you know, three blocks away if, if she really lit into some what kind of partner would she be she has venus in gemini and it is enclosed in an interception see this see how it's enclosed in here yeah she cannot easily access this and venus at two degrees gemini is not the most warm and cuddly. Um, her, the way she loves is almost intellectual. And she, but let me, let me, I mean, not, not to, to rem remove, she has moon in Taurus. So, uh, I mean, she could be, an extremely good partner for someone very steadfast. She's got this Saturn in seventh house. Saturn in the seventh house can make you very dependable and reliable and unwavering as far as, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Stability and dependability. But there's also lessons involved with that. And, that Uranus in Pisces is a little concerning for me in the eighth house, but 
I'm going to say that she would be, I'm going to go with the good side and I'm going to say she would be a very good, dependable and fierce partner. Like if she thought someone was coming after her partner, she would step out and, and, and take action. How would she handle rejection? Can you be more specific on what kind of rejection? Is this rejection from, is she like spurned a lover or is she not getting her book published or what, can we be more specific? Uh, do I know who this is? Um, maybe. Okay. So can you be a little more specific with rejection? Because well, let, let, let's go with both of those examples. What would, okay. uh, if she were spurned, uh, what would happen? And, uh, if, uh, there's something that she really wants to have happen and it doesn't, what, what would she do? I'm going to say, honestly, I think this woman is familiar with stuff that she wants to have happen that doesn't always happen. And I'm coming at that from this Jupiter and Capricorn because that can be setbacks in things that you want. You know what I mean? Saturn gives you setbacks. Uh, I do not think in any way, shape or form it would deter her. Let me put it that way. I'm going to say that I feel that this woman is familiar with setbacks she understands them. She works them out in her mind. And she takes the lesson and goes forward. I could be completely wrong, but that's what I think. This is the best case scenario of this chart. Because this woman is not unfamiliar with setbacks, I think. What kind of mother would she be? I think she could be a great mother. She has sun conjunct uh, moon in Taurus. I think her children would have been very, very well fed and housed and clothed. And, uh, you know, I think that she probably would have been a really good mom. Like, you know, I don't think her children, I want to say that I don't think her children would have wanted for anything. I think that, you know, they might, may or may not be really rich, but either way, I don't know that the children would have suffered because she's quite the warrior, this one. One way or another, she's going to get it done because she's not going to give up, you know, unless she's the dark side of Taurus, which I'm not used to, but dark, dark side of Taurus could be very lazy, but I just don't think she was. I don't think so. What is her legacy? Oh my God. She has Uranus in the eighth house. So it's highly possible that somehow she discovered something no one else ever discovered. Or she um, fought somebody. <laughs> she was fighting them. Uh Uranus in the eighth house. It could be something. I think it's something new and different and out of the blue. Like maybe it was discovered by accident. Somehow. Um, kismet. Eureka. That kind of thing. 
you have any other final first impressions? I think if all of this is what it is, I think I would totally like her. And I would really appreciate and understand her journey and what she's been through and what she's trying to do. And that I think, I think she did her best. I think she would have done her best if all of these are the good side, which I like to go with. (laughs) All right. Well, I think uh, we are ready for a summary of our findings. Okay. The first thing you said is that she would be a very obstinate, a very stubborn. Uh, She is smart, keen, doesn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, well put together, and mm-hmm. knows what she is doing, an excellent communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, her appearance, she could be sweet-looking, uh, pixie-looking, uh, very aware of valuables, values, and finances. She is level-headed about finance, uh, not one to go for extravagant, opulent things. She is fair-minded in her communication cordial with her siblings, uh, might have a nice childhood. Uh, There are secrets involved in her life. Uh, There are issues with the home, possibly. Uh, But there's also power that comes from the home. Uh, A lot of people might pass away uh, around her home. Uh, Her power happens with a cavalier attitude. Uh, And her home could be traveling. A lot of benevolence in her life. A restriction of abundance uh, is also a major um, component of her life. Interference with joy. Uh, She could be fortunate in things like business and money. Uh, She is working to heal humanity. Um, She could heal things unexpectedly. Learning lessons with partners and intense lessons with partners. Uh, Spiritual, uh, creative partners is what she'd be attracted to. Uh, She wants a creative partner, wants uh, a strong masculine man. Uh, There are things unexpected and creative things that go on in her life. Uh, Dealing with addicted people uh, might be something that she has to deal with. Uh, Addicted people or partners. Uh, There's a veil of misunderstanding. Uh, Weird, unexpected things. Unexpected inheritance might be her legacy. Uh, She would be a warrior. Independent. Fiery. uh, And... She could feel like she could do anything, capable of anything. And this uh, capability, this independence, all goes into uh, the worlds of travel and higher education and philosophy. And there is an intense connection with these ideals of higher education, travel, philosophy. Uh, She is in tune with philosophy and dogma. Uh, She's not someone you'd want to pick an argument with. Uh, she could be detached in her relationships. Uh, she, um, can think her way out of her emotions. Uh, she wants to nurture groups of people. Uh, could be theatrical with her leading ability. Uh, her career, her job could be, uh, something that involves healing groups of people. 
and she'd be able to make money while doing it, using a creative ability, ability to heal groups of people and make money doing it. Uh, business savvy. Uh, she would be a voracious learner. Uh, she knows a lot about nature and the earth, and she has a thirst for knowledge. Uh, she wants a very masculine, warrior-like uh, person. Uh, someone who is also very creative, uh, very unique. Uh, she might have a stubborn father. Uh, she might have a lot of head-to-head -head conflicts with her father growing up, uh, but he might also be fatherly and a good provider. Uh, she would be like a bull in a china closet. Uh, could be voracious. Of, uh, you know, voracious and ferocious. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, cannot easily access her affection. Uh, she uh, loves through her intellect. Uh, could be extremely good, a steadfast partner. Uh, there are lessons in her partnerships. Uh, she would be a fierce partner. Uh, familiar with disappointment and setback and not deterred. Uh, could be a great mother. Uh, her children would be well-fed and housed and clothed, not want for anything. She would be quite the warrior. Uh, her legacy might be that she discovered something. Uh, maybe that she's a fighter. Um, she ha has something to do with new, different, out-of-the-blue take on things. Uh, she has mom's seal of approval. <laughs> uh, and mom would appreciate her journey. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a woman who did her best. Yeah. Part of me feels sad for her, and I don't know why. But I just feel this overwhelming. I don't know. Could be the coffee. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I just feel like, I feel like she went through a lot, but I could be totally wrong. Is there anything else uh, that I've left out? No, I'm just... Uh, <laughs> I have no idea who this could be. Uh, well, uh, this, while you may not know exactly who it is, uh, this is the mother of someone uh, who we've already done on the show. Wow. Uh, so uh, you are looking at the astrological birth chart of Mary Wollstonecraft, uh -huh. who is the mother of Mary Shelley. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, I find that very interesting. I was discussing Mary Shelley earlier today, but wasn't Mary Shelley the one that was raised by the Bohemian family? Well, yes, but... Super, like, weird Bohemian? Well, yes, uh, and we'll get into that. Uh, okay. But Mary Wollstonecraft also passed away 11 days after giving birth to Mary Shelley. <gasps> wow that's really weird because it doesn't really i mean by this birth time it doesn't really this is maybe not the right birth time because but i mean that pluto in the fourth house maybe i don't know i mean i don't know how this birth time came to be but, um, I mean, people passing away in the home, 
But this is not this is not the chart of someone that I would be like, oh well, you know, this is gonna be. But then again, unexpected death, you know? It could be as simple as that. Remember when I was saying it could be just as simple as people dying in the home? Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. Well, that's wow. And I was like, why am I so sad? Oh my gosh. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so, well, I'm very, I'm very interested in what, how long did she live and what did this woman live through before she passed away after having Mary Shelley? Wow, well, I she, think it's so weird have... that I was feeling so sad. And then I was like, maybe it's the coffee. Okay, no, it's not the coffee. It was sad. Uh, so, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, her legacy... Uh, is very much connected to Shelley. Um, uh, of course, she her that that's her married name. Uh, her her uh, 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 maiden name was um, Mary Godwin, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Wollstonecraft, whether she had uh, given birth to Mary Shelley or not, deserves to be remembered in her own right as a political thinker and sort of a Mm. proto-feminist. In the late 1700s, she is writing uh, and publishing with her own name uh, a a lot uh, of ideas about Mm. um, gender roles and women's role in society and education and political thought. Um, And uh, uh, so Shelley growing up... um, had this memory of her mother that everyone talked to her about who this woman was. Mm-hmm. And so then Shelley goes on and has her life. And then because Shelley becomes so big later on, people rediscover her mother's um, works. Oh. Uh, so uh, the, the two are intricate, intricately connected. Mm-hmm. And I think at, at a later time, it'd be interesting to look at the two of them together because mm-hmm. they also live sort of similar lives. Uh, so Mary Wollstonecraft uh, is born uh, in April 1759 uh, to Elizabeth and Edward Wollstonecraft. Uh, she is the second of seven children. Uh, and the Wollstonecrafts was a middle-class household, um, but um, Edward was not um, the greatest father. Uh, he uh, was an abusive alcoholic, mm. um, and he kind of squandered uh, the wealth of the family. Mm. Um, in some of these um, bouts of uh, physical abuse, mm. uh, Mary uh ended up sort of being the protector of the whole family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there are stories of her uh, protecting the sisters there and protecting the mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there were times where uh, she would lay in front of her mother's bedroom door to prevent um, uh, the father from getting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of has this protective role that she carries on throughout the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Um she did have some education, uh, but always thirsted for more. She was attending a, a day school, and uh, but always uh, 
wasn't necessarily getting the lessons that she really wanted in life. Um, but luckily, she had a lot of friends uh, and, and close friends uh, that opened the door to her to a lot of different intellectual pursuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of these uh, was Jane Arden, and the Arden family uh, kind of had some uh, connections with a lot of the different intellectuals and philosophers of the time uh, in uh, uh late uh, 18th century London. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, her her best friend was a woman named Fanny Blood. And uh, her parents uh, were a couple who uh, were very connected to the artistic and intellectual community uh, in the later Enlightenment uh, period in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, uh, she would go to their house and uh, be exposed to all sorts of different ideas and uh, ways of thinking uh, that uh, she was certainly not getting at school. Um, by the time she was 19, uh, she left the house on her own, unmarried. Um, she decided to become a ladies attendant. And so she was uh, working in this um, aristocratic household and mm-hmm. she didn't get along very well uh, with the lady uh, that she was attending. Uh, <laughs> she was a sort of a crotchety uh, conservative woman. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was uh, very uh, intellectually minded and very bohemian in her pursuits. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it wasn't uh, the greatest fit. And so she left her employment there and then moved in uh, with Fanny Blood. And uh, they decide to start a girls' school together. Uh, And so uh, her, uh, Mary and Fanny and uh, some of the uh, sisters all get together to um, run a a, a girls' school um, out in the country. Uh, and uh, it was quite successful, uh, which was uh, different for, again, late 1700s England, mm-hmm. um, especially in the lessons that uh, are being taught in the school aren't necessarily uh, the same that you would get at uh, regular uh, day schools of the time. Um, but Fanny, she decided to get married, and she was also very ill. She had been ill most of her life, and she got married, and uh, they thought that possibly... Um, whether it was tuberculosis or not, Mm -hmm. uh, that um, it would be better for her to move to a southern climate and Mm -hmm. uh, be in a more warm area. So she moves to Portugal. And uh, her illness does not uh, get much better. And so she writes uh, for Mary to come and and help her. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Wollstonecraft leaves England, goes to Portugal to be at Fanny's uh, side. Um, But uh, Fanny uh, does end up passing away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Mary uh, goes back to England. And by the time she gets there, the school hasn't been taken care of very well. And so Mm -hmm. it kind of has to declare bankruptcy and the whole thing uh, kind of um, goes away. Uh, she is just 25 years old, and she's already founded and uh, uh, had to give rid of a, a, a whole female academy um, mm-hmm. and already lived a, a, a tremendous life, and it's mm-hmm. really just getting started. Uh, at 25, she becomes a governess uh, for an Anglo-Irish family, uh, the Kingsboroughs, and uh, in this role... She's sort of this intellectual Mary Poppins uh, to this family. Uh, the girls uh, were not uh, 
very happy with the previous governesses, very stodgy and conservative. Um, and she kind of opened the door to all these different, uh, the same that happened to her when being with the blood family, all this, uh, different avant-garde thinking and, um, intellectual purpose that could be given to females and women, which was again, not, uh, uh the traditional roles, uh, of what women were supposed to be learning at this time. Um, this, had uh, developed a lot of conflict uh, between Mary as the governess of the girls and the mother of the girls as to what the future of them would be. And she decided to give up all that and go out on her own again uh, mm -hmm. to become her own author. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, she uh, gets into the circle of Joseph Johnson. And Joseph Johnson is, again, one of these... Um, uh, magnetic personalities uh, at the head of sort of this bohemian enclave in London. So there are lots of artists and philosophers and intellectuals and radicals and anarchists who are all in his circle. And so she's introduced to all of them. Uh, she um, starts off translating works uh, uh, of radicals and uh, different thinkers from Germany and France, um, but then starts writing on her own. Uh, and in this circle, she meets people like Thomas Paine, who uh, during the American Revolution wrote uh, Common Sense, uh, who uh, is in uh, English terms this far left uh, radical for uh, uh, the ideas that he has about um, individual liberty and getting rid of the aristocracy and all of that. Um, and she also meets a man named William Godwin. Uh, now, uh, later on, much later on in her life, uh, she would marry William Godwin. Uh, but at the first meeting, uh, it went, uh, well, William says that it went disastrously. Um, <laughs> Because uh, she went up to him and just argued with him all night long. Uh, he was there to meet Thomas Paine. He wanted to meet this man mm -hmm. and, and attend this program. But she cornered him and just uh, read him the riot act about all of his <laughs> wrong ideas. Uh, which, uh, you know, some people might look at that and say uh, that, uh, the, the, take it at face value, that she saw this man and really did not like what he had to say. Uh -huh. But there are some people who flirt through arguing. Oh, no. Um, and I think that it just might be possible that she was one of those people, uh, mm. that she was somewhat uh, attracted to the man and did and showed this through confrontation. <laughs> um, but maybe that's just uh, myself reading too much into it. Um, but anyway, the, nothing happens uh, after this uh, chance meeting between the two. Um, uh, so she continues in this circle. There's also this Swiss artist uh, named Henry. I'm going to take a stab at this and be uh, Fuseli, uh, who is the Swiss artist uh, who is married. And uh, she is a little over 20. Mary is just a little over 25. And she decides that she's going to live out her bohemian values and shacks up uh, with Henry, uh, the Swiss artist, and has an affair with him and loves him so much uh, that she proposes to Henry and the wife that the three of them should live together. Oh, no. And the wife didn't like that idea so much. Oh, no. Um, and Henry uh, decided to go along with the wife. Uh, I'm sure that he would have liked to have had a lot of fun with this whole arrangement, <laughs> um, but decided no. Uh, and uh, 
but it, it, it kind of shows you her headspace, that she's really into pushing the envelope and mm-hmm. pushing back on traditional roles for women. She's mm-hmm. the one who brings this up, not him. Uh, she's the one who's having this idea. She's the one who's deciding uh, to uh, engage in intercourse without being married. She's mm-hmm. the one who's who's doing all these things. Um, uh, but yeah, that whole arrangement uh, falls apart. Um, <laughs> at the same time is when she really starts focusing on writing her own uh, uh, literature. And one of the first things that she publishes on her own in 1787 is Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. And this is something that was really important to her. Um, growing up in this sort of middle-class household, the education, all that she was offered um, was sort of uh, what all of society really viewed women as um, just being there to secure the bloodline. Uh, all you really need to know is enough to get a good husband uh, so that you can produce a male heir, so that you can secure the bloodlines and the finances. Um, but there was nothing real inherent that a woman needed to know or could offer society. Uh, really, schools uh, were encouraging these middle and upper class women. Uh, you learned about fashion. You learned about manners and propriety. You learned how to play cards, how to be an entertaining wife, um, but not much intellectual pursuits. Uh, so this is a theme that she carries on throughout a lot of her works is that uh, uh, women have this inherent intellectual value to them. Uh, now, Modern-day feminists uh, criticize her for still seeing the role of the woman as this uh, solely um, in-the-house, domestic-life, caretaker, mother, uh, wife role. Uh, but really, uh, I would say and argue that um, just in the fact that she's pointing out women's inherent intellectual value, mm-hmm. still s- putting it into the scope of being a mother and wife, it's still a bold action uh, to mm-hmm. be writing about this and saying that it is the woman's role to educate children, that it is the woman's role, they are their first teachers, children's first teacher, and to make better citizens. Mm-hmm. Women need to know things about government and politics and morals and ideology mm-hmm. so that they can in still these values in the next generation Mm -hmm. to make better citizens, to make a better society. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is a huge part of this first treatise that she writes in 1787. Um, she also uh, kind of looks at what education uh, is and how it is, um, ha- how it has been done uh, through teachers and uh, people who were of more conservative minds and aristocracy really focused in that education, especially of lower classes, is about obedience and discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not about creating uh, novel thinkers. Uh, it is about making sure that people understand what the hierarchy of things is and uh, that they need to obey uh, direct orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of pushed up against this, along with a lot of other philosophers at the same time, of uh, uh, education isn't 
supposed to be about this blind obedience um, that you're not training a dog, you're training a human being, and that there uh, there's a a lot more, even uh, more of an emotional approach to what education uh, could be, especially when talking to women and daughters. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, again, this is a huge thing for the time that kind of gets lost on us today. Of uh, uh, not only should women be educated in intellectual pursuits at all, but there's a right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that comes out in 1787, and she makes a name for herself in uh, uh, London circles uh, for this pamphlet. Uh, and now, as we get 1787, then we get to 88, 89, there's a huge event going on right across uh, the English Channel as the French are completely losing their minds. Uh, the French Revolution has begun. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is 30 years old as we get into 1790. Um, and the English had a lot of thoughts about what was going on over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the men who had uh, and wrote a lot of his thoughts down was Edmund Burke. And Burke is sort of this, um, he becomes this uh, uh, sort of person articulating the conservative response to the French Revolution. Mm. Earlier in his life, Burke had been, uh, one might even say, a supporter of the American Revolution. Uh, He was a liberal Whig in uh, Parliament. Uh, But by the time we get to the French Revolution, he's not even seeing the worst of it yet. We're still in 88 and 89, Mm -hmm. where the French French are just arguing mainly to have a um, a representative constitutional monarchy even, at least mm-hmm. the moderates are. Uh, Louis and Marie still have their heads at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Burke is writing about how crazy things are over there. It's like, buddy, buckle up. Uh, mm-hmm. Wait until you see what they do next. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's saying that really what the French have proven is how great we are over here in England uh, with constitutional <laughs> monarchy, that we have this solid aristocracy class uh, that can keep a lid on all of the crazy things uh, that uh, lower class people uh, want to do. Oh, uh, there's no. a, a, uh, a strict order and hierarchy and things. Uh, the Church of England, uh, how wonderful an institution that is. Uh, so he writes this in his uh, critique of the French Revolution, and uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, and she works day and night from the second that this thing hits the presses, Burke's uh, publication hits the presses, she works day and night to organize her thoughts uh, against everything that Burke has said and mm-hmm. as a supporter of the French Revolution, uh, or at least some of the aspects of the revolution, and she becomes the first person to publish a critique of Burke uh, mm-hmm. in uh, 1790. And uh, so this is a vindication of the rights of men. Uh, and in it, she talks about uh, how the French turn towards republicanism is a good thing, that um, uh, aristocracy and monarchy and the, all the upper classes having all this power is not good, mm-hmm. uh, that the aristocracy is filled with uh, um all, all of this uh, vices and abundance, and that they are taking from the people, and they are uh, have uh, they're morally corrupt. And uh, really, she argues uh, something that would be very familiar to American audiences, uh, especially people like Thomas Jefferson, that mm-hmm. the ideal society is one of yeoman farmers who are uh, self-subsistent, uh, uh, that uh, they produce their own goods, um, that they are not dependent on other people, they're not. Dependent 
dependent on the government or mm-hmm. trade. They are their own um, uh, idealized utopian community where they make their own food and they eat that. Um, uh, so uh, she talks about that uh, as, as a point against all the things that Burke is arguing. And this uh, really... Um, uh, especially being the first one to go up against Burke uh, gets her some notoriety outside of the fact that she publishes it anonymously. Uh, so uh, before she puts her name on it and before people know that it's a woman who's written this, it's huge. People are writing about it as uh, one of the great things uh, to uh, uh, combat your uh, conservative uncle uh, at the dinner table mm-hmm. is what this pamphlet says. But then on the second edition, her name is put on it and people know that it's a woman who's written it and people's minds completely change. People mm-hmm. who were supportive of it now think that it's overly emotional or mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it's not sensible. Um, uh, so that's always something that she's having to fight against. Yet, we are still in this late 1700s period where they are letting women publish things. As we get into the earlier part of the 1800s, people like Jane Austen and her own daughter, Mary Shelley, will have to publish things through other names uh, because they will not let women publish things. Mm -hmm. But in this later part of the 1700s, this is still something uh, that is happening. And um, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, takes advantage of all this. Uh, I, I'm only going to go into a, a deep dive uh, on, on one last one here because it is the seminal work. This is what she is always remembered for, and that is a vindication of the rights of women in 1792. And this is sort of this um, proto-feminist work where she calls on, and, and a lot of the themes that I've already talked about, um, the expansion of a woman's role in society, um, in the education uh, of the the next generation of citizens, uh, that um, women uh, have uh, this responsibility to know these things about philosophy, about government, about education, about knowledge, uh, so that they can instill values uh, into the next generation and Mm -hmm. to their own husbands, that they can be uh, not subservient to the husband, but an equal partner to the husband Mm -hmm. in creating a family unit uh, that uh, can create a better society. Um, And and so... uh, uh, Rights of Women uh, talks about uh, all these uh, different things. Uh, She also uh, talks about uh, that there's this double standard, which is something that we talk about to this very day. We still haven't figured this out, Mm -hmm. where men can go out and uh, uh, have uh, uh, all sorts of relations with all sorts of women, and we admire them. We call them uh, 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 playboys or players or whatever, that they. uh, uh, this is something that society uh, uh, looks at as... Uh, something that's good, whereas when women do the same thing, uh, they are ashamed uh, for that behavior. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, people would say, some people would say that uh, women uh, should not be looked at harshly uh, for engaging in uh, multiple sexual relationships. What she's saying is instead that men should be held to the same standard that women are, that we should not celebrate the men for all of their uh, playboy uh, uh 
adventures, but instead both men and women should be held to the standard that you should not live your life this way, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting because she is not living her life that way. Mm -hmm. She is living her life according to this very bohemian, adventurous, (laughs) sexually adventurous lifestyle, at least for the time period. Yet she's saying that's not necessarily don't do as I do, do as I say. Uh, This is not a best way of creating a society here. Um, I'm just 25 years old and having a good time, but this is not what we're supposed to be doing as a whole society. Um, uh, But that just pointing that out of the double standard and she says men and women are equal before God, um, that there is this morality uh, that goes along uh, with this um, uh, uh, acknowledgement of the differences and the similarities between uh, the sexes. Um, she also calls on men to institute these changes. She's not saying, and there there's some criticisms of this from the modern day, mm-hmm. um, where uh, she's saying that men are the ones, the good men are the ones who have to institute these changes in society, in educating women. That women are not the ones who are going to take this on their own and take this away from men. Uh, that a woman's place, she still is very much in this idea that a woman's place is not in the public sphere, it's in the domestic sphere, but that good men have to go out there in the public sphere to articulate for these changes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, modern day feminists hold this against her, or at least some do, um, that she's not necessarily making that next step, that women have this inherent value in the public space too. But again, it's this idea of baby steps towards this broader goal. And she's just not at that same place uh, that we are today. Um, then she, she lives her own words. She talked about how great the French revolution was. So she went over there and she <laughs> went over there in 1792. Mm. This is when things are really starting to get really crazy over mm-hmm. there. Uh, so, uh, she's over there and she is an eyewitness to the reign of terror, mm. uh, seeing, uh, she, uh, writes down, she was an eyewitness to seeing King Louis, uh, mm. being paraded through the streets and saw, uh, mm. Uh, uh, him crying, saw him weeping, uh, and she starts writing down, uh, uh-oh, um, maybe we're going a little too far here with all of this. Yeah. Um, she's not quite at the point of saying that all of this was wrong, but there's a lot of violence going on, and there is a lot of things that are being uh, uh, just this this cavalcade of violence that's mm-hmm. going on all over the place. Um, she, while she's over there in Paris, she meets an American uh, captain. So uh, a, a cap, he was a captain, or at least he said he was a captain in the American uh, Revolution in, in the um, Continental Army, and his name is Gilbert Imlay, and she has this wild affair with him. Uh, Uh, And he is this American businessman and a blockade runner. Uh, So the English Navy has completely blockaded France. Uh, But uh, he is able to get on these American ships and get past uh, the English blockade and get goods from America into France. And for that, uh, the radical uh, French Republican government uh, uh, likes him a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so uh, through Imlay, she is able to um, uh, have some sort of safety, slight safety, but really... 
this is the reign of terror. People's mm-hmm. heads are rolling all over the yeah. place. Um, and so, uh, but through this affair, she is able to um, have uh, some sort uh, of uh, uh, safety as she continues to witness all the things that are going on. Mm. Um, then uh, through she she has this affair and she becomes pregnant. And on May fourteenth, seventeen ninety three, she gives birth to her first daughter, uh, Fanny, who she named after her best friend, uh, Fanny Blood. Um, and uh, Imlay disappears. Uh, he abandons them. Uh, he wants nothing to do uh, with uh, getting married. He wants nothing to do with raising this girl. So now uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, is in the middle of the reign of terror uh, with a new baby uh, and no uh, support. Uh, she uh, does. Uh, she continues her writing career while she's doing all this. Uh, so uh, she uh, publishes a historical and moral view of the French Revolution, mm-hmm. but she only takes it to 1789. Uh, she she doesn't get into all yeah. the stuff that she's going through right now, uh, and kind of. Uh, but she writes this because the French Republicans, the, these radicals who are changing everything about fundamental things of life. They changed time. Mm-hmm. They said that time is now going to be based off of 10-hour uh, 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 days and 10-day weeks okay. and 10-month uh, years. Uh, all the, I mean, completely fundamentally <laughs> change everything. But while they're doing all this, women have no role in any of it. Uh, we're not going to grant any of these new freedoms to women. No. Uh, so she looks at this and, and looks at the hypocrisy of all this <laughs> and says uh, that, no, absolutely, this is the time. If you're going to go through all this and change what time is, you might as well give women uh, rights. Uh, and so uh, she writes this uh, in uh, uh, one of these um, uh, treatises um uh, and 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 again, she talks about how uh, even in this radical French uh, uh, revolution, uh, a woman's value is only placed on her womb, mm. uh, that there is no value that is placed on her brain and her intellect, and that that is something that needs to change. Mm-hmm. Oh, she finally does get out of France, and she goes back to England to try and find Imlay. Uh, and she tracks him down, and she uh, says that we should get married, and he rejects her. Uh, and she gets very depressed, and she uh, uh, attempts suicide uh, with wow. arsenic. Uh, Imlay finds her and does revive her and brings her back to life, but still rejects her. Says we're we're not th- this is over. We're not having a relationship. Um, and so, but mm. Mary takes this opportunity to do some of Imlay's business work for him. Uh, Imlay is sort of this importer exporter, uh, maybe a little bit of a pirate too. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has some business going on in Scandinavia, and Mary goes over to Scandinavia uh, to conduct this business for him. And while she is there, she writes a travel narrative about all of her time, and it's not just about oh uh, I, I saw some wooden shoes in Denmark today or, or whatever. It's also all the emotions that she's feeling uh, as she's been the spurned lover, as she has uh, attempted suicide. Um, it's all of her own emotional journals go into this narrative as well. Mm-hmm. 
And she publishes this in England, <laughs> and William Godwin uh, finds, uh, he, he reads it, and he falls in love with her. Uh, <laughs> he says uh, that reading about all of her trials and tribulations, uh, he doesn't know how any man wouldn't fall in love with her. Mm. Um, Mary comes back to England from Scandinavia and again tries to get Imlay to marry her. Uh, Imlay again rejects her, and she again attempts suicide, uh, this time by drowning herself in the Thames. Um, she is discovered, and she is pulled out and resuscitated, and she says um, uh, that uh, there was nothing wrong in the logic, uh, that I was following a logical conclusion of my life, oh. um, but uh, I've been rescued to continue to suffer in this life. Yes. Oh. Um, but uh, she, uh, she does find finally take the hint that she's not going to be with Imlay, even if she does have this child. Again, mm -hmm. she's done all both of these suicide attempts, and she has a child that she should be taking care of. Uh -huh. um, but uh, that's she, people get in their own emotional um, turmoil, and, and she decides to go through those things anyway. Um uh, so she, but she starts meeting up with Godwin again. So she meets William Godwin again uh, through her publisher connection, and they start talking and they start realizing um, the affection that they have for one another. Uh, and they have a passionate affair. Uh, and she becomes pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they decide, he decides to do the honorable thing and get married, which is really interesting because Godwin, uh, a radical himself, argued uh, for the abolishment of marriage uh, as an institution. Mm. Um, but uh, he decides to, to get married and they do so March 29th, 1797. Uh, and uh, they have a house together, but he also has his own separate apartment uh, 20 doors down. <laughs> Uh, so that they don't drive each other crazy. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, on August 30th, 1797, uh, she gives birth to Mary uh, Godwin, uh, and she uh, gets an infection, uh, mm. and uh, she uh, dies 11 days later uh, in September of 1797. She was 38 years old. Mm. Um, her legacy. So one of the first things that Godwin does, Godwin, I, he, he does love her, mm -hmm. uh, truly. Um, but, uh, what he does is that he produces a publication of her memoirs, uh, and talk, which talks about all the avant-garde things that she did in her life, her affairs and her, uh, suicide attempts and her depression and all of this. And, in the more conservative moral area of England uh, at this time, uh, it kind of sullies her reputation for all of her political thinking. Mm -hmm. That if she was doing all of this in her personal life, what does that mean for her political writings? And so they kind of get pushed under the rug and kind of forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but at the same time, Godwin tells uh, his daughter, Mary, about uh, 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 her mother. Mary Wollstonecraft. And uh, so young Mary grows up with this idealized vision of what her mother was as this avant-garde bohemian fighter uh, mm -hmm. uh, and this uh, uh, a person with all these radical ideas and uh, ends up living a life very similar to her mother. And so uh, she would take Percy Shelley over to the grave of Mary and talk to her about uh, their life together. Um, so it was a, 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 a huge part in the 
formation of Mary Shelley, uh, and then what we later get on in her writings. And then, after the end of the 19th century, is when her writings, Mary Wollstonecraft, comes into light again, mm-hmm. as we are in the midst of getting women the right to vote in England mm-hmm. and in America, and people really start re-examining uh, as we get into this first wave of feminism, and then when we get into the second wave in the 60s and 70s, her writings are reevaluated again and have been reevaluated many times since then. And... Uh, a lot of people recognize uh, how important these writings are as these proto-feminist texts, while at the same time she is really just advocating for women like herself, upper middle class, middle class, upper class um, English uh, uh, women uh, and what their role is. There's not a huge part for lower class women. There's not a huge part for women who aren't English, who are uh, uh, of some other uh, race or ethnicity. But at the same time, these are huge advancements in the cause of uh, women's equality. Um, And uh, that is sort of uh, the legacy and the life of Mary Wollstonecraft. Mm Wow. 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 Okay. So very interesting. Uh, I do want to say like, um, just looking at the different things in her chart, one, her legacy, Uranus in Pisces at 29 degrees in the eighth house is clearly new and unique and creative. All right. So there's that. Then we have all of this Taurus, right? And I'm thinking, oh, Taurus, Earthy, you know, Earth. No, Taurus is ruled by Venus. Taurus is ruled by Venus. This is all about women. And honestly, I think that this comes, I wonder to myself, I wonder out loud, do women that have Mars in Aries, do they have abusive father figures? I'm wondering if that's a thing, because when you put this all together, all right, and you say, okay, well, she has Mercury in Taurus. Mercury is communication. She's communicating about women. She has Moon in Taurus, which is women. She is, she has Venus in Gemini, and she is Venus and Mercury in the 10th house. So she, her career is to communicate. It is a writer because Gemini is ruled by Mercury, which is communication, and she has Venus there. So she loves to communicate about women. It's easy to see now <laughs> on the other side of it. But I, I think I was kind of close as, as we went through. Also, Mars in Aries, I think, for a woman can be a blessing and a curse. Because for all of the women who have Mars in Aries, you have a whole different perspective of certain things between masculine and feminine, because you are naturally a warrior. Also, this works for women who do have Aries placements in general, um, because you are so passionate and so fiery. And this woman was fighting all the whole time. She's fighting, you know. Um, this suicidal thing, uh, I don't know. It could just be like the Pluto in the fourth house, if this is even the right birth time, because who really knows that this is the right birth time? But 
I mean, a lot of this stuff does make sense. The Saturn in the seventh house lessons with partners that, oh, you know, but that Mars and Aries, oh, it just, uh, the thing about Mars and Aries is it makes you very passionate and that's passionate all the way around, whatever it is, you're very passionate about it. So if you fall in love, you're very passionate about it. If you, you know, and you're not so much willing to give up, <laughs> it makes you kind of Irish in that, in that sect, you know, but, um, again, here we have the North node in, in cancer. Okay. Cancer is the moon. Moon is women. Her passion was you know, women, groups, betterment of women. So this makes a lot of sense when you know who it is and what their life was. You know, you're not just dealing with your average bear here. And she had to have a man, a man who was masculine, who was able to handle her. She needed somebody strong enough to handle her, but also be creative. But, oh, this makes so much sense now that I know her life. And I, I understand why I was feeling such overwhelming sadness. I mean, clearly she was fighting her own demons. She was fighting her father. <laughs> she was fighting him her whole life because of his abusive behavior. And I mean, that's like the worst, worst side of Taurus. You know, she, her son and Taurus could be the father was this, but that's like something I don't even normally even think about. You know what I mean? But I do wonder about women who have Mars and Aries, if there is some abusive father figure in there that, that lights that fire to make them fight. And maybe that's whatever karma they have. Because if you look at it from the perspective that we are all coming into this life at the time we do when we do, because we've already chosen the lessons we want to learn in this lifetime or what we're doing here, you know, but, uh, I don't know, Pluto in the fourth house. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we didn't talk much about what kind of a mother she was. Um, clearly, choosing to commit suicide over raising your child is not good. So there's that. But um, this, you know, this work in healing, you know, healing the people, uh, Chiron and Aquarius, humanity, she's trying to change humanity, you know, and yeah. that's kind of what she sees her day to day is trying. She's so passionate about it and so undeterred, you know, she's, she's just, um, uh, I think that in a lot of ways, her purpose is to bring attention because clearly it didn't change the world the way she was hoping. I mean, she was still young, even at 38, she was still young, you know? I yeah. mean, I don't know. I'm just, I, people lived a long time. They keep acting like people died so young, but I, they did not. And well, if you survive childhood, <laughs> you, you would very likely live right a, a, a regular life. life. Yeah. So, I mean, we have ancestors. George Washington Robinson, I think, lived what, in, didn't he live up into his nineties? Something like that. I can't remember, but I mean, and the, clear, there was no medicine, you know. So people were living. 
So somehow they were making it through all this. These people had already made it through the plagues, you know? So with this in mind, wow. I mean, it's really weird for me to have said these things. Like I'm going back in my mind going, wow, I don't think you know this woman, I don't think there was so much great. There's more about, you know, what she did survive, you know, what she endured, how she persevered. This woman, all that Taurus, except for the part where, and sometimes, I don't know. I mean, sometimes history is changed a little bit so that it doesn't make the person sound as good as they were or whatever. I don't know. But, um, cause I'm not really I mean, she's, seeing. She's writing in her own words about her attempts. Okay. Well then there it is. So, but I mean, I'm trying to see in this any, any real, real, you know, I don't know, maybe Neptune in the, in the, in the 12th house, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I mean, uh, wow. Yeah. The, the adventure, the, this woman who's doing these things that are absolutely not things that women do, you know? And, uh, so, wow. I mean, she was really amazing, but so human. You know what I mean? I think yeah. maybe if she had not attempted suicide, it would make her less human than she was. Because when you go there, you are at a place where you are so overwhelmed. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I just think, wow, wow. Yeah, her journey. And I had no idea who she was and I didn't know what she had been through, but just looking at her chart going, Oh, this was a journey. This woman. Wow. She went through it, you know, amazing, yeah. really, really great choice Chandler. I'm so, I'm so happy that you did this and I know this much about her. I appreciate that. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you. Uh -huh. uh, I think on our scale of right on the money to way out in outer space, uh, this is pretty close to uh, right on the money. Um, the time might be uh, a little off, um, but I think that a lot of these things uh, bear out. And uh, I mean, healing humanity as her purpose, um, that is a, a, a huge part uh, of her life. And uh, I think once you, uh, I mean, I was looking at it myself while you were talking and seeing the um, uh, Venus and Gemini and Mercury and mm -hmm. it's like I mean that's talking about women that's, mm -hmm. that's what that is mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think that there's um, a, a lot of things that, that bear out here. I'm so proud of you! You're looking at the Venus and the Mercury together the 10th house and understanding that's talking about women. That's awesome Chandler. I'm very excited. I hope that somehow this is bringing uh, more information to people out there in the world with the i mean clearly you're telling people verbatim about these people but if they're picking up anything like you're picking up after all this time of us doing this that you can put that together it's so awesome i i'm very i'm very happy about that <laughs> 
Uh, well, uh, that brings us to the end of this episode of History in Retrograde. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you would like to reach out and support the show, uh, we have all sorts of links provided in the show description. Uh, we have the links to our social media page, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we also have the link to our YouTube channel. Uh, there are videos uh, from our first season uh, that are up there. Uh, so if you'd like to uh, either reacquaint yourself with Mary Shelley, is that one up there yes Mary no Shelley? uh yeah mary shelley is yeah, on, Mary, yeah, on youtube it was like the third yeah. or fourth episode mm-hmm. so, yeah uh, you can you can uh actually follow along with mom as uh you look at um mary wollstonecraft's um daughter's uh chart uh and uh several other uh people from our first season are all up on our youtube channel and while you're there if you could subscribe to the channel um and like the video uh, that helps us in uh building everything up also we have a link to our paypal account um, every little bit helps us in producing a better quality show and expanding our audience. Uh, so uh, if you feel so inclined, we'd very much appreciate anything uh, that you could put in there. And if you would like to be your very own Mystery History guest, we can make that happen. There's a link uh, to Chandler's Mom at HistoryAndRetrograde.com. Uh, just uh, send Mom an email. She can get with you about the details on how to uh, have a, a chart uh, read. Yes, absolutely. Please visit our website, www.historyandretrograde.com, and you can follow all the links to everything that we have there. Um, you can also follow the link to put things in our tip jar and give us a cha-ching if you like. Um, we will definitely appreciate that. Um, I'm having a wonderful time getting to know you. I have several recurring clients that I'm working with on a regular basis. I would love for you to be one of those. Um, I really, really enjoy getting to know you guys. And uh, so please um, send us a line. Let us know you like the shower. Let us know what you don't like. Let us know if you might want someone, you know, that you've thought of to let Chandler know um, to do the history of that person. And I'll do their chart. Yeah, and uh, Mom uh, needs to um, uh, have the rest of this coffee completely take effect. Um, But uh, we will be back uh, next week uh, with uh, more of your uh, favorite uh, historical and astrology and all the nonsense that we get up to. Um, As always, in conclusion, uh, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything is going to be just fine. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.